Hello, and welcome to ZeroNet50. I'm Jennifer Deloney, and with me is Joel Stromberg. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, so let's jump in today with the topic we've been covering over the past few weeks, and that's the Select Committee on Climate Crisis. What's going on there right now? Well, uh, Republicans finally uh, appointed their uh, members to the committee. Um, there was a fight, well, not a fight, but there was concern going on that um, they would appoint the staunchest deniers um, that were in the caucus. As it turned out, they didn't. Um, the minority, uh, ranking minority member is uh, Congressman Garrett Graves from Louisiana, uh, who was actually uh, probably one of the few members of Congress that has ever been supported by both the Environmental Defense Fund and the Koch brothers. Um, he's worried about coastal issues, and um, he also sits, sits on the Environment uh, and Commerce Committee uh, in the House as well. Other appointees were reasonable. Um, there's somebody, uh, Morgan Griffith from Virginia, Gary Palmer from uh, Alabama, Buddy Carter uh, from Georgia, and there are two freshmen, uh, Carol Miller from West Virginia and Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I think what they'll do is follow uh, Garrett's lead in all of this, and it will be certainly uh, great news if they had if they have the kind of conversation that uh, is actually balanced. Now, that's not to say that they won't bring in their particular prejudices from, from the party side, but this mm-hmm. looks like it may be a real possibility. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we're we're going to dig in a little bit on West Virginia later in this podcast, so it's interesting to note that their presence yeah. is there. Right, that's right. And, and that's a good observation, and I don't think it's going to be anything that makes anybody Senate or House from West Virginia, um, you know, not in carry coal with them into the committee meetings. But again, they're going to take their, they're going to take their leadership, I think, from Graves, um, who is a senior member uh, of the minority in this case. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, where are we at with the um, congressional Green New Deal resolutions at this point? Um, it, <laughs> uh, it, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Um, you know, I think that we discussed last time that. Uh, my, uh, Majority Leader uh, McConnell uh, was threatening to bring the uh, uh, Markey resolution to a vote within. Actually, it was supposed to, it was talked about being brought up this week, um, and that's been pushed back. The Democrats are, were obviously worried about not having a unanimous um, uh, delegation uh, support the uh, support Markey's resolution. There's been a lot of talk from a number of senators, not the least of which is. Uh, Joe Manson from West Virginia, who was not going to vote um, for the Markey resolution. What the Democrats did, and I thought this was a really clever stroke on their part, they now have um, put in a nine-sentence resolution um, that they want voted on the, uh, first. And the resolution just simply says that uh, climate change is real, the human contribution to it um, is real, and the Congress should be doing something about it. Uh, this is probably the shortest resolution I've ever mm-hmm. seen. Admit. Right. Um, and all 47 <laughs> Democrats actually signed on to it. Um, okay. And this is doing two things. One is that it's going to keep stalling McConnell. Um, the, initially, what, what the Democrats were talking about, uh, and I think I've mentioned it before, certainly written about it, is that the Democrats were not going to vote um, 
yes, yay or nay on the uh, on the Murphy resolution. Uh, what they were going to do is, they, for the most part, they wanted the Democrats in the Senate to just vote present, so that the only recorded votes that could actually show up would be the Republicans. Hmm. I think one of the reasons that they changed over to this shorter resolution is that they, they couldn't really quite keep control over uh, a couple of the members of the Senate, uh, Manchin certainly, uh, but others too. I mean, there's a problem that you know a lot of these a lot of the Democrats these days are, are in conservative states and in conservative uh, districts. And what's happening is that there's kind of a, a tugging going on, party loyalty mm-hmm. or or constituent loyalty. And this is a great way to kind of get out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it should be hard for everybody to say that um, these nine sentences really um, are, are screwy the way they've been talking about the uh, Green New Deal. On the House side, no, nothing is happening, actually. And that's something that also, um, we've anticipated before. I don't think that uh, uh, Speaker Pelosi is going to allow any kind of a resolution to come to the floor. Um, if there's any question about uh, unanimity of the, of the Democrats. Interesting. Well, can we, you know, talk a little bit about the the um, solidarity of the House Democrats and you know where we can see where they might align. Uh, yes, and uh, you know, and this is a—it's a great question that that is going to have an answer that um, is is continuing in process, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great sign, for example, on the Senate side that that Schumer could keep all the Democratic senators um, in line. Right. On the House side, uh, Pelosi has done—I mean, she's been doing a ter- terrific job, and she really has. Um, but two bills came up this week in on the House, both gun control bills, actually. Um, and yesterday, there was the second of the bills, uh, of those bills came up. Um, and prior to a final vote on the legislation, the Republicans uh, threw in uh, what's called a motion to reconsider. And under the rules of the motion to reconsider, um, the, the, the bill didn't even get sent back to committee. It kind of devolves into a committee of the whole, as far as the House is concerned. Mm-hmm. And the the Republicans were able to put forth a proposition that would have amended the bill, but not sent the bill back to Congress, or back to the committees, or anything else. Um, it was a procedural vote, really. I mean, it didn't, mm-hmm. these things don't really change the outcome. But what happened was that um, something like 20, 22 Democrats um, voted with the Republicans on the procedural. Um, that did not please Pelosi in the least. And um, I mean, there, there's still smoke coming out of the room uh, where they caucus after the fight. And the rumors are that I mean, Pelosi really kind of read people the riot act about um, the loss of solidarity, especially on a procedural vote. And what's happening now is that, there, again, this is, you know, the, the Democrats have a majority, but not all of these um, uh, incumbent uh, uh, Democrats are in safe Democratic districts. A lot of them are in, uh, in 50-50 districts, and some of them are even in Republican-leaning districts and state. So the, the ones that voted for the, uh, the motion to, um, to recommit um, were voting what they thought was their um, rightful uh, place, if you will, given who, who their constituents are and what they promised their constituents. Pelosi was saying, you know, well, I understand all that, but 
you're 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 doing this on a procedural road, and it it kind of wrecks the rhythm of things, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So this is something that's going to have to be worked out. And it, it just like gun control is, I mean, certainly a hot button issue with with a number of right. uh, Republican uh, areas. You get the same thing with uh, Medicare for all, and certainly about about climate. And mm-hmm. so this is something I think that she's going to keep working on as it unfolds. We'll have a much better idea of how much solidarity there really is in, in the, the Democratic ranks. And it's mm-hmm. going to prove to be very important, um, especially going into the 2020 elections. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, this week, the hype about Trump's national emergency on border security was calmed right down in the face of Cohen's testimony. And, uh, the question of national security, of course, is still lingering, and Republicans have expressed fears that a national emergency on the border would fuel a Democratic president declaring a national emergency on climate. Uh, and I don't know why I didn't Obama think of that. But uh, White House is taking a step on that front to test the waters on climate change and national security. And uh, I wanted to know a little more about that. Well, it's, you know, let me answer the, the question that you asked just prior to that, that yeah. why didn't Obama do that? And <laughs> right. I, one of the reasons is, is, you know, this is, Congress can be a delicate balance. And mm-hmm. um, you know, when majorities take too much advantage of their position, um, sooner or later the majority is going to be in the minority and they're going to have that rule used against them. It, it mm-hmm. happened um, in 2013, Obama was having trouble getting his judicial nominees approved through a, Republic, or through a Democratic um, Senate because mm-hmm. it, at the time it took secret majorities. Um, and what Harry Reid did at the time was that he and the Democrats changed the rule to go from a simple majority of 60 to approve judicial nominees to a simple majority. Well, you know, since Trump has become president, um, almost every one of his very conservative, and I would have to say half his nominees were not even actually qualified to become judges. Yeah. Um, but the Republicans prevailed in this now because they have, 50, they have 51 votes. Now they right. have 53 votes. So this is something they didn't want to do. What, what the Republicans are they're opposed to Trump's doing the national security stuff is basically based on setting a precedent that, that could come back and hurt the sort of Democratic and climate um, uh, hawk come, come back into the White House. Uh, what the White House is now doing, which could also be something of a precedent that the Republicans may not want to put up with um, in a Democratic administration, is that the White House is now looking to create a separate body, um, an advisory body, if you will, that will raise, that will address the question of um, whether climate is in fact a threat to national security. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a reasonable question on on, on the surface. The yeah. problem is that they're looking to appoint um, deniers, and, and and by deniers I mean really deniers. Um, right. uh, the the lead on this is is a is a man named Happer, um, and Happer comes out of Princeton, um, and his entire record on climate is to denigrate the rest of the science community, and he's even written about how carbon is in fact a net benefit 
um, to the world because it creates really new things. Um, well, they're going to be able to fill that committee pretty much with, with the, any deniers they want. Part of this is going to depend on how it's set up. For example, if he does it by the executive order, um, then it could be that the, the new, this new committee um, could fall under the uh, Federal Advisory Committee Act, which, which constrains him somewhat. But they can also do this as a subset of the National Security Council um, and actually make it a closed-door session. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, what they want to do is Trump understands that he's, I mean, that he's losing his fight on climate. And I think that a number of Republicans in the House and the Senate understand that as well, notwithstanding all the, the garbage that these guys are saying about, you know, if you do the Green New Deal, we won't have hamburgers anymore and that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. But what, what's coming up is there are a whole series of very important rules um, that EPA is coming out with, not the least of which is the replacement for the clean power plant. Um, the Trump's idea of this is the American Clean Energy Plan. Um, well, all of these things are based on uh, basically going back to the to the um, Supreme Court decision on uh, in the Massachusetts case that said EPA um, has the right uh, has an obligation to in fact regulate. Uh, greenhouse gases, and if they if they determine if EPA determines that um, these greenhouse gas emissions are in fact endangering the health of the human population, then they're obligated to do this. Now, this is something that these two cases, uh, or the, the the Massachusetts case and the endangerment finding, have basically been mentioned in every single. Um, environmental law cases come up since then. And mm-hmm. it was the entire basis for Obama's being able to do what what he tried to do. Well, now what, what the White House is trying to do is to create a body that says, well, um, you know, our opinion is that the science still is unsettled. And maybe, maybe there's climate change and maybe there's not. The scientists can't be sure. And then they're going to take a stand that says, well, even if the United States did want to do something about it, and, China and India and Russia um, are going to make anything that we do a hollow gesture. What they're looking to do is to create uh, a a plausible denial of what the majority of scientists in the world say about uh, uh, climate change. And what they're hoping to get away with is to be able to go into courts now and say, look, I mean, the science really is unsettled. Because there are other law cases that indicate that um, if the legislative language is unclear, then the uh, federal agency uh, has has a right to kind of interpret it the way they want, um, and the judges and the judicial system should be honoring it. It's called the Chevron uh, deference. Mm-hmm. And so what they're looking to do is to really create a very, very unsettled case that they can now um, go into the courts with. And if you've noticed, the, this administration actually, although they started screaming about being taken to court, their new tactic is to short circuit the courts, uh, the, the trial courts in particular, by going either directly to the appellate level or to the Supreme Court, um, given the conservative balance that's now there. And I worry, um, I think that it ultimately, whatever this new special committee does, it's still going to be on the outside of what the majority of the world scientists have to say. But it gives them enough of a hook um, that 
they might be able to get in court and get away with things that they have not been able to get away with uh, over the first two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're sort of setting themselves up to have uh, false authority. Yes, um, yeah. and yes, and and you know this goes into the the whole idea of the of the Trump administration. They don't mind chaos in these kinds of cases. Mm-hmm. They don't care if. Um, if they they don't nearly care as much about losing as you might think because they won't lose for another five, six, seven, eight years uh, as stuff gets through the courts. And in the meantime, um, the fossil fuel industry is still able to go about right. its business. Screaming along. Yep, screaming right along, isn't it? <laughs> All right, well, um, this week also was pretty busy for hearings, and there was uh, some issues going on with the National Resource Subcommittee. Oh, yes, um, there was. Again, a very interesting uh, kind of tactical move, if you will. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't know that, uh, as an inveterate watcher of Congress, I kind of appreciate it. I, I don't know if it, okay. it, it carries the same thrill with other people. But what happened <laughs> yep. was that one of the subcommittees um, called a hearing, and only two Democrats showed up, although there was a majority on the, on the committee, and mm-hmm. four Republicans did. So what happened was that the Republicans put up a motion saying um, that natural, the Natural Resources um, Committee and their oversight subcommittee shouldn't be dealing with climate change at all because it has nothing to do with it. Um, so now, so they, they kind of ended the subcommittee that way. It'll get overturned, but I thought it was a very interesting way to, to kind of make their point. Um, and it, it gives us an insight into how natural resources um, it's going to set its agenda and how much conflict is going to be on there. Um, you saw some other uh, committees going on this week too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, I want to dig, dig in on a hearing that was uh, put up by the U.S. House um, Committee on Energy and Commerce. It's their subcommittee on environment and climate change. And that hearing was specifically, um, they held it yesterday, which was February 28th, and they wanted to identify opportunities for filling this federal void on climate change that has formed under the Trump administration, you know, the pulling out uh, of the Paris Agreement, et cetera. And um, there were a lot of themes to look at in the hearing, but there was Republican messaging, I think, that's important to decipher, and that seems to be our theme today. Um it goes right along with the article this week that you wrote, Joel, that's up on civilnotion.com called Beware Republicans Bearing Environmental Gifts. Um, and and you've sort of touched on some of the themes from, from that article today, but certainly our listeners can go and, and get the whole thing. But I was specifically interested in what committee member David McKinley, the Republican representative from West Virginia, had to say. Uh, In my line of work as a climate and energy journalist, I keep a close eye on what Virginia is doing because they're among those with the most to lose in the the energy transition away from coal and power. Um, So so for that reason, West Virginia's attorney general uh, helped lead the way in legal proceedings against the clean power plan. So we can keep that as a measure of where they're headed. Um, McKinley's comments in the hearing when he had the floor for five minutes showed an interesting stance, specifically one that doesn't deny climate climate change. And, you know, that's something you don't hear often from Republicans. So I was fascinated by that. Uh, But he's quoted in response to the Green New Deal when it was introduced as saying that 
we all agree that climate change is largely driven by greenhouse gas emissions. Well, I didn't realize that we all now agree on that. I think there are uh, Republicans uh, who would agree, disagree that they agree. Um, but what McKinley tried to drive home is that America is doing a great job on climate. Hey, look at us. We're complying with the Paris Agreement, uh, but it's the rest of the world that's not complying. He quoted stats for China's and India's emissions being up 200 plus percent in the last decade, while the U.S. is down some 20 percent. Rah, rah, go us. But he says that no matter how much work the U.S. does to reduce its emissions, the rest of the world is still going to be using fossil fuels and emitting. And here's what he says about that. Across the globe, we're still going to see climate change. Oceans will rise. Temperatures will increase. We're still going to have droughts and severe weather problems all around the globe. Maybe not in America, but around the world, they're going to suffer. So apparently, if we uh, deal with our emissions here, then climate change will not affect the U.S., but everyone else is going to be affected because that's how climate change works. I'll let everyone unpack that on their own. But McKinley really showed his hand when he said that the thing that bothers him the most is that Americans are asking the rest of the world to implement reductions uh, but not giving them the tools to do it. And let's agree that the U.S. has been part of a global community calling for climate action. We're not standing alone shouting at the rest of the world to step up. And, and you know, and so his perspective is, is very one-sided there. Uh, that aside, McKinley says that there's no technology in existence that is economically feasible for reducing emissions because he wants to promote a very specific technology. He says we should put money into innovation that the U.S. can export to the rest of the world. And this uh, theme always comes up from Republicans, innovation versus regulation. And they don't want regulation. They want innovation. They want to, you know, the market make money. Uh, So he wants to export whatever this innovation is to the rest of the world. So as they're using their fossil fuels, they can turn to U.S. technology to reduce the the emissions from that usage, which is a is a nice theme, uh, but what he's calling for is is a technology that supports the lifespan of fossil fuels, of course, carbon capture. And instead of market-leading clean technologies that we can export to the rest of the world and that are right now on course in the U.S. to being free of federal subsidies. So uh, instead, he wants to put money into a technology that is currently so expensive that even a tax credit that was approved by Congress last year to spur carbon capture projects has basically created no carbon capture projects. And McKinley's special interest witness specifically testified to that during the hearing. Uh, That tax credit is called 45Q, and the same groups behind 45Q are now pushing for the Use It Act, which supports the development and demonstration of carbon capture. Let's get back to what makes carbon capture, according to these groups, the right technology that uh, deserves the mass amounts of funding that would be necessary to make it feasible. Carbon capture advocates point to um, a DOE-supported project called Petronova. Have you heard of Petronova? I have. You have. So this is the success story for the Times. 
Uh, it's evidence that the technology is worth the push to keep coal plants open rather than letting them die a quick death by market, as is currently happening. And Petronova is a carbon capture retrofit of a coal plant that cost a billion dollars or $4,200 per kilowatt. And it's the only example of this type of plant in the U.S. There's only one other in the world. Uh, and other companies that want to use this te- uh, kind of co- technology have basically abandoned their plans for it. And what's especially fun about Petronova is that the carbon capture is injected into uh, mature reservoirs to release oil reserves that were not being accessed. So the captured carbon increases the output of other fossil fuel resources, which have a carbon footprint. And the AIA information on the emissions for this project doesn't discuss that extended footprint at all. The idea is that Petronova's emissions are reduced by 90%, but you know, there's no additional conversation about that ongoing oil uh, emission down the road. So at the end of the line, what's McKinley's motive and move at this point? Well, he's one of the representatives that introduced on February 14th the Youth Act, which I mentioned earlier. The act would authorize, uh, let's see, $35 million in competitive prize funding for uh, air capture technology and $50 million towards research and development of technologies that transform carbon, uh, captured carbon dioxide into commercial projects. So on this discussion of funding innovation, one of the last things I want to note about the hearing is the suggestion from Andrew Light with the World Resources Institute. And if you have a minute to read his testimony, it's very interesting. Uh, he called not only for doubling the funding for DOE clean energy research, but <clears throat> he says that $600 million in approved funds for DOE bodies like ARPA-E are going unspent. Like there's no definition for how that money is going to be used. And our, I think the bottom line is the Republican call to put new funding out to the world to give fossil fuels a longer lifespan, which is this gift to climate change, uh, should be balanced against the proper use of existing funding to innovate on market-leading technologies such as solar and wind and batteries. So, you know, I I know you've paid attention also to this issue on on carbon capture. You know, know, what are your insights on where they're going with this? Easy to say, hard to answer. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because I, my personal feeling on this, to be, honest, to be totally transparent, is that I think that carbon capture really does have to be worked on, but mm-hmm. not to the exclusion of uh, solar, wind, and batteries and all this and all the other clean technology that's coming forward. Um, it's also, uh, it's, carbon capture is also, I think, going to be potentially um, an area where bipartisan support may actually come forward. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you, as you mentioned you know, on the House side, uh, on the Senate side, uh, John Barrasso uh, from Wyoming and Tom Carper, a uh, Democrat from New Jersey, um, have also uh, signed on to the to the use of um, concept um, and are both pushing for uh, carbon capture. And I think that one of the reasons that carbon capture is important. Um, globally, actually, is because there are a lot of countries that are not going to be um, getting off the coal standard 
um, anytime soon. Uh, that to me is a problem, and, and, um, and the United States isn't doing nearly enough to do that. Part of carbon capture, I think, is also, as you pointed out, a question of motivation. Um, I mean, if you're motivated to do this and you realize that there are going to be a lot of places out there that need this kind of um, uh, technology, then that's a good thing. If you're doing it to delay the time um, when coal plants can retire, that's not such a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're getting a lot of mixed signals, for example. But, um, Trump had tried to um, convince uh, Trump, um, I think it was, to, to deep six, um, not to deep six three or four coal plants that um, they were looking at because they just don't meet um, standards and it's too expensive to bring them up. Um, coal plants are being retired and it makes no difference what the White House has to say. And my personal feeling is that the technology, carbon capture is not going to come online fast enough to save most of the uh, coal inventory, at least in the United States. Right. Um, I also think that the other thing that's happening is if, if this should not be the only technology that we export. Um, I mean, we have great clean energy technologies, and if you spend that much money, um, then export those technologies to, mm-hmm. to foreign markets. Um, in the meantime, because we're not doing that, or because of you know, tariffs and some of the, the uh, stances that, that Trump has taken, China is going, to be, I mean, it's going to be the major supplier of renewable energy um, in the future. And that's that's going to happen unless we do something fairly quickly. Um, I think the other thing is that you're seeing in this, yeah, the, the, there's actually a, a, a tag that's been put on this, you know, we understand that climate change is happening, but um, it's called the lukewarmness position. Yep. Where, yep. Um, and so I think that it's a sign on one hand that, I mean, even the deniers um, are understanding that, you know, not only is this real, but you know, the world is, getting way away from them as far as being able to um, and, and knock this trolley off the tracks, if you will. Um, right. So what they're doing is trying to sound more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, to me, um, it was kind of the message of my, of my uh, Beware of Republicans bearing gifts, that some of the efforts are, are actually quite legitimate. Um, others, not so much. What they want to do is to continually postpone. Um, and so you have to kind of judge these things on the basis of um, who's saying it and uh, what it is that they're saying. Um, yeah, hello. I agree. Yeah, yeah um, I, so, I agree. Yeah, this, is, this is going to be an interesting problem going forward. And, and again, this kind of ties back into um, whether the administration would be allowed to roll back um, existing regulations. If they show themselves to be reasonable, um, it may help them uh, in the courts, but it also is going to help them in the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I just, you know, want to come back to that idea of economic feasibility. And, you know, so anything that we want to make economically feasible on carbon capture has a timeline that uh, completely outpaces our needs for climate effectiveness. Well, that, that's right. Right? And, that's 12 right. years. Well, that's right. And the other thing is that what, what they do with that is the, the Republicans that are putting this forward um, are also following a double standard. Because what they're saying, I mean, when they roll back environmental regulations, what this administration has done, uh, and they're doing it with the Green New Deal, uh, I mean, they're talking about you know, the Green New Deal is going to cost $93 trillion, uh, which is more than some change. 
But what they never do is they never um, quantify what the benefits are. Uh, health, you know, in, in improved health, in, um, in environmental habitability and what have you. And so at the one side they say, well, we're not going to do these solar and other things because, well, look, they're, not, they're too expensive. Same mm-hmm. thing goes with environmental regulation. But somehow they're forgetting about it on the carbon capture side. And right. right. This is so, I mean, duplicity is certainly not new to, to politics. But I think that one of the reasons that we should be excited about what's happening now around the Green New Deal um, with, the, with the Democrats on the House side in particular is that people are actually now talking about this. So, yeah. uh, you know, you got to hope that the conversation will kind of uh, unwind itself in a way that people, I mean, the voters um, will actually see the duplicity of the administration's position um, mm-hmm. and just begin to start ignoring it in the sense that they're going to push for more sensible and inclusive um, kinds of technologies. The other thing this is playing into, and this kind of gets us into the future issue, is yep. that uh, Secretary of Energy Perry is back on the um, on the bandwagon about grid uh, uh, stability and security. And he's now talking once more about um, keeping nuclear and coal plants uh, unprofitable and uh, costly coal plants online mm-hmm. again. Um, and doing this under the, you know, all of the above scenario. Perry's even talking about um, a new polar vortex that's coming up um, in March, and we'll see if the, his words, we'll see if the, if the grid can take it. So these are species. I mean, there's no question of that. But again, what they're looking to do is to try to find some way to make their case sound like something other than um, their own personal opinion. I mean, they, right. it's certainly not based on the science. Um, right. And so that's going to be coming up a lot in the future, um, yeah. as are other regulatory issues as well. Yeah, the preservation of markets and, right. you know, for at the expense of climate is, is an issue that I see constantly. Uh, all right, well, is there anything else that you're thinking about as as we wrap up and looking towards next week? Yeah. Um, as I start looking towards next week, I'm going to start looking at um, again, some of the court cases that are coming up, there's been a fair number of new cases filed not only in the United States, but um, in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. And also begin to look at what kind of legislation not only is being introduced, but what's being assigned out to committee. At some point, there's going to be a lot of discussion more about tax extenders. Um, and we're going to be able to kind of get some idea of whether there's any kind of um, movement within the Republican ranks uh, to kind of balance, I think, the, the, their party's um, uh, understanding of what climate is and, and what it is that they want to do. My guess is that over the long run, we're still going to have this kind of huge um, partisan gap. But the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll be seeing some proposals in, including on budget and appropriations, um, which is maybe an area where Republicans won't um, be as uh, stingy with the funds as, as they have been in the past. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that's going to happen, and this kind of goes back to one of your issues, is that the oversight committees on the House side are actually going to be looking into why the administration is not uh, actually spending the money that 
that's been appropriated for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that, you know, there's always getting the money in Washington is one thing, keeping the money is another, and actually seeing it go out the door is a third issue. And one of the reasons that, that uh, administrations are so effective in kind of putting uh, their their brand on stuff is because they can they can judge and halt um, and speed up any kind of funding requirement uh, funding um, of particular programs if they want to. So it's all going to come up, and my guess is there'll be the great big rush uh, into Easter. Then they'll take a couple of weeks off, and um, there'll be time to rethink again. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll just add that um, you know among the funding issues, uh, light with the um, with the World Resource Institute was also pushing for Congress to consider the international assistance funds uh, that um, they've already allocated but are not saying you know, what they're going to do with that money. So it's something to keep watching. It is. I think the other thing to keep watching as well, in, in, again in that vein, um, is whether the uh, the emergency declaration that Trump wants to do on the border wall uh, ends up in pulling funds from places like uh, Ford A and what have you, yeah. uh, because the, the the pots of money they talked about from defense just don't exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, well, I think that's a great place to bring this episode to a close. Thank you, Joel, for your insights you, today. Jason. Of course. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Great. Listeners can tweet us questions or comments at hashtag ZeroNet50, and have a great day.